Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon, my name is Ellen Gobbler and I manage the Graduate Council Lectures. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It is now my pleasure to introduce Marjorie Shapiro, Professor of Physics and past chair of the Physics Department. So I'm very pleased to be able to, uh, to introduce uh, to you today uh, for his second lecture of the week, uh, Professor Leon Letterman, a physicist, Nobel laureate, former director of FamilyLab, educator and author. Uh, I'm not going to give you a long biography of Leon because his talk today is really going to talk about his life and he can tell you about it much better than I can. But I did want to say that I first met him when I went to Fermilab as a postdoc in the 1980s and it says something about Leon, first of all, that I always called him Leon even though I was a peon of a postdoc and he was the director of Fermilab at the time. And second of all, that I always felt very comfortable talking to him. He was somebody who used to eat in the cafeteria every day and if you had a question about physics you could just plop down next to him and ask him a question, and he would talk for hours. Uh, he loved talking about physics, and he re really felt that it was an important part of Family Lab that everyone feel that they were part of the community. So uh, as I said, the lecture today is, is really going to, uh, to be about how Leon went from his start as a physicist through all of his great discoveries. But, uh, but as somebody who, uh, who saw those discoveries both in the past, because some of his largest discoveries had happened when I was still a young student, but also saw them come to fruition later on, I just wanted to make sure it was clear to those of you who aren't scientists in the audience what a pivotal role he's played in the history of our field. Uh, the era where Leon was doing most of his science was an extremely important one. It was one where we went from having almost no understanding of what we now believe are the fundamental particles to where we have a picture that, although it isn't complete, allows us a framework for really describing what happens on a subatomic scale, hopefully all the way up to, uh, to, all the way up to very high energies and, and to what could happen in the early universe. And Leon played an important role in the discovery of several pieces of that, the, uh, the thing he won the Nobel Prize for, the discovery of the muon neutrino, was one of the things that told us that matter had many copies of itself, that there was one, more than one family or generation of particles. And then later on, he showed us the same thing was true for the quarks as well as for the leptons as, as being the person who led the team to discover the bottom quark. He also played a very important role in making sure that the appropriate facilities existed to do, to do that science. He was instrumental not only in discovering the neutrino, but in understanding how to produce beams of neutrinos. And when he was director of Fermilab, he was there during the construction phase and the initial operations of the Tevatron, the proton-antiproton collider that's been the highest energy accelerator for the past 20 years and will continue to be until the turn on of the LHC hopefully at the end of this year. So with that, let me uh, welcome Leon, and, and I hope you all enjoy the talk. And at the end, we will have time for questions, but uh, I'll step down now. <clears throat> Are there any questions? Well, I hope there'll be questions. <clears throat> uh, let me uh, be comfortable here and hope you all are comfortable too. So I'm going to ramble, and I hope uh, somewhere in this I will talk about uh, physics and uh, my experience in physics. Um, but let me... Uh, begin with a story. I was a graduate student at um, Columbia University. That's uh, somewhere in New York. And um, we got a telephone call from a friend in Princeton uh, asking whether we would like to meet Einstein. And uh, we said yes. A friend and my uh, and I uh, thought this was a joke. You know, we could we possibly meet Einstein? Is that doable? And our Princeton friend said, oh, yeah, yeah, he, he uh, goes to lunch every day, and uh, if you sit on a certain bench, I'll show you where, uh, he'll pass by, and maybe, you know, he'll feel like chatting with you. 
So we drove down to Princeton and found the bench and we were told to sit here and wait for the great, greatest physicist to pass by. And sure enough, after a little while, there he came with his uh, research assistant, I think, and uh, uh, there he was with his uh, baggy pants and sweatshirt and uh, sandals, I guess. And as they came close to us, we heard his assistant say, would you like to meet some students, Professor? Yeah, he said, yeah. That meant yes. So we uh, <clears throat> uh, sort of jumped up, and he uh, stopped <clears throat> with my friend first and said, uh, what are you doing? That's German for what are you doing? And uh, my friend said, I'm uh, doing a thesis on uh, quantum theory. Ach, said Einstein, you're wasting your time. And I felt a little better because I'm an experimentalist, so I was doing experiments. I told him, I, I'm working uh, on the properties of pions. Ah, he said, pions, pions. We don't understand the electron. Why do you waste time with pions? <laughs> okay, boys, goodbye, he said. And he walked off. He had uh, disposed of two brilliant, handsome graduate students in 30 seconds. Uh, but we didn't care. We had exchanged words with the greatest physicist of our time. So we were really very happy. Uh, it was quite an experience to, um, to have that. And uh, I don't know if anybody here is uh, old enough to have met Einstein. Bruno, did you meet Einstein? You see? Okay. So I'm unique. I'm, I talk to Einstein. <laughs> it's uh, quite a, quite an, it was quite a, a, an experience. Um, the, um, uh, being a graduate student, uh, this was, I had spent uh, some th three years helping a guy by the name of Eisenhower with some problem he had in Europe. And it was called World War II. <laughs> and um, so I had... Uh, uh, and then uh, as soon as I was able to uh, 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 manage uh, being discharged from the uh, military, I uh, rushed to Columbia and registered uh, as a graduate student and uh, started to study physics again. And I think that was probably the worst year of my life because... I had forgotten how to study and had spent three years doing totally irrelevant things. And all of a sudden I was back to studying and had forgotten how to study. I'd forgotten that physics was, uh, was fun. Uh, I was having a, a terrible time and uh, several times considered that maybe I'm doing the wrong thing, you know, working on uh, trying to get an advanced degree in physics when I didn't really know uh, much about it. I had forgotten. And uh, that, was a, that was a very, very hard experience for me. And um, then, then something funny happened. Uh, I uh, had uh, uh, been given a small room where I could uh, begin to think about apparatus and think about... Uh, doing uh, some research. Uh, the chairman of the department was uh, one of the founders of American physics, uh, Isidore Rabi, and uh, uh, he had <clears throat> told me that this room would be the place where I would do some research. And uh, I uh, had been away from that room for a couple of weeks working on preparing for a major exam and uh, came back and uh, entered the room and there was a janitor mopping the floor and singing, obviously, some Italian song. And as soon as I came in, he sort of used his mop as a kind of a, a rifle. He held it and he announced in, uh, very loudly his, presumably his name. It was Bernardini. 
And I said, yes, that's very good, but be careful. That mop is wet and the wires there have electricity and you're going to cause short circuits. And he looked at me blankly, you know, didn't understand a word I was saying. His English was not so good. But later I, uh, I uh, came out of the room and I decided to wait until the janitor was finished with his mopping. And Mr. Robbie was actually in the hall, and I said, I see you have a, a new janitor that doesn't speak any English. He said, you mean the guy in the room? I said, yes. Oh, he said, that's not a janitor dope. That's Gilberto Bernardini, a famous cosmic ray physicist, and I hired him here so that he may be able to get you through your Ph.D. degree. <laughs> oh, my God. So I rushed back in to repair my damage and start to communicate with this guy Bernardini and that was hard because his English you know he used to, I remember he'd come in in the morning and say good night everybody you know <laughs> I was very friendly uh, and uh, but he was uh, very funny he had I watched him he had uh, I realized that he was uh, a famous scientist he had very curious uh, activities. He would uh, enter a room and push the light switch and lights would go on and he'd look at the lights and he'd say, Fantastico! <laughs> now that's Italian and I think it means fantastic. And then he'd turn the lights off, turn them on again, Fantastico! Turn them off, turn them on again. He kept doing this, you know. What? what? Well, he... Uh, seemed to think it's just fantastic that you can push a button and the lights go on. Come to think of it, it is kind of, you know, wondrous that you push a button and the lights go on. I mean, we know that you could figure out that the push the button and some circuit closes and a hundred miles away uh, a motor drives uh, some electricity and eventually the lights go on. But it was, for him what I call a sense of wonder. He'd push the button, the lights would go on. Fantastical. And that's what he had. Every, everything he did, he seemed to take uh, a certain amount of amazement. So we, uh, we started to communicate, and his English improved. My Italian didn't get any better. In fact, it was zero to begin with. Still is. But, um, but he was uh, someone who took a great deal of joy. And then the first thing he did is he wanted to find out what was in this laboratory. And uh, the thing that I showed him I, was my despair. I had built something called a cloud chamber. What is a cloud chamber? Well, it's a box uh, about 12 inches in diameter, maybe 6 inches deep. And uh, it's filled with uh, some hydrogen gas and some alcohol vapor of some kind and um, uh, the notion was that if you uh, pushed a button the bottom of the chamber would collapse and the temperature of the uh, chamber would change and you were supposed to see tracks of particles and all I got was white smoke I tried and tried and my it was a failure. One of my many failures was uh, I couldn't get this cloud chamber to do anything but white smoke. And Bernardini looked at the chamber and he says, what's that? And it was a wire going into the chamber. And I said, that's my radioactive source. Gilberto said, dig it out. I said, but that's, that gives me the tracks. That's radioactivity. He says, dig it out, dig it out. So I took it out. Tracks beautiful tracks appeared. My radioactive source was about 10 curies of some terrible <laughs> ultra-radioactive stuff that was killing the chamber. So uh, we learned. Uh, what else did we do? Oh, yes. Then he showed me how to make a, um, a, a kind of Geiger counter. So we, we did some machining. He showed me how to use the tools. Uh, of uh, machinery and string a wire through the middle of this uh, copper tube and there was uh, little insulators and the wire came out and uh, eventually we'd have the whole thing working connected to an oscilloscope 
and we were watching the oscilloscope, and all of a sudden, on the oscilloscope, there was a sweep, and then there were little bumps. And Bernardini went crazy. Is it counting? He said, is it counting? He starts screaming, and he was much shorter than I was, and probably half my weight. He picked me up and started dancing around the room. It's a counting, it's a counting. Well, this is a phenomenon he must have seen hundreds of times as a cosmic ray scientist, but he never got used to the notion that we were actually observing particles that came from millions and millions of miles away and came to the 10th floor of the Pupine Physics Building at Columbia University and said, buongiorno, that's what he said. He said he's, he's, he's saying buongiorno to us. You know. uh, it was kind of, again, a phenomenon that he must have seen, I don't know how many times, uh, but never um, got used to it. He, he had this uh, sense of wonder that you can actually uh, observe this object that came from so far away. And that's what he would say. He's come to say buongiorno to us, 10th floor Pupin, Columbia University. Uh, it was the beginning of a, of a um, return to me of the, the, the fun of physics, because that's what it was. For him, it was a joy. And uh, I kept learning from him. Uh, how to also enjoy the physics little by little um, that was uh, uh, something that uh, restored my uh, enjoyment first of all because he was a lot of fun and uh, he, he put on a lot of he was a good actor in many ways and, uh, and I think he was doing a lot of this for my benefit but it was certainly a learning process uh, and uh, uh, I think I was very lucky to uh, have that experience because I needed that kind of restoration of uh, of uh, of enjoyment and fun. And uh, uh, the thing, though, that was most impressive was this uh, sense of wonder about the world. Uh, he never uh, got used to it. You push a switch and the light goes on. Fantastic. Fantastico. I should say it right. Uh, <clears throat> uh, that, um, at one point, I remember uh, he uh, warned me that uh, sometime, uh, as when you're in, in physics, you're going to uh, uh, see something that nobody ever saw before. He sort of warned me about the... Uh, the uh, joy of doing science and discovering something that no one has ever seen before. And that was uh, certainly a, uh, a major uh, uh, effect. And uh, so I thought I'd tell you this story because it's uh, 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 illuminating to find out had I had it been someone else, maybe a more conventional kind of guy who might have also been a good teacher, that might have helped too. But having this uh, gentleman be so enthusiastic and uh, 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 so sharp in, in his uh, enjoyment of science was, uh, I think, crucial uh, to my, uh, my experience in my career. Uh, the uh, some years later, I was now at Columbia. I was a professor. I was doing research. I had my own graduate students, uh, and uh, what he warned me of uh, happened. It was three o'clock in the morning. I don't know why these things happen at three o'clock in the morning. I was uh, doing an experiment. I was out in, <clears throat> in the fields of Illinois, and I was checking apparatus. Uh, graduate students had gone to sleep, and I was looking at the equipment and uh, began to study some of the output from one of the computers, and it looked very funny to me. Something unusual was happening. And then out came what was 
something we had been waiting for, a spectacular uh, track uh, proving the existence of um, muon-type neutrinos. Let's never mind what that is, but it was something we possibly expected, and there it was, and all of a sudden, it was... Uh, it made you breathless, your palms started sweating, you were nervous. Uh, something was happening in this apparatus that was spectacularly beautiful. And its implications were very deep. It would make headlines all, the wo- all over the world. And uh, it became hard to breathe. I tested things, I checked. I, everything I looked at just confirmed that at 4 a.m., uh, in a, in a, a cold winter day in the fields of Illinois, I had uh, good evidence of a discovery. I uh, actually lo- located uh, Bernardini. He was, in fact, visiting in New York at the time, and I had a telephone number, and so I called him. I told him what I had seen. Well, by this time, many years later, his Fantastico had disappeared and it was Americanized and when I told him what I had found out came holy shit no kidding (laughs) so uh, that was uh, 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 a magical experience uh, certainly Uh, some years later uh, my wife Ellen, sitting out there, and I were in Sweden. Um, Gilberto had come too to help me uh, uh, receive the Nobel Prize. Gilberto's Fantastico was ubiquitous. He was very excited by this. And I said to Ellen, I, uh, did you ever in your wildest dreams imagine that we would be in Sweden dining with the king and queen? And Ellen, very skeptical as usual, said, you were never in my wildest dreams. (laughs) That's the way it goes. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, what can I tell you? Uh, uh, Physics, the joy of doing physics once... You get to the knack and you're lucky. Luck is a very important issue. If anybody tells you what does it take, luck would be uh, probably one of the first things you would opt for. Uh, And uh, so, uh, and uh, also, the other thing is your surroundings. And being at Columbia University was a fantastic experience. There was um, uh, a sense of vitality to the thing. Times were were appropriate. Discoveries were uh, on the horizon. A new apparatus was available. Uh, If I compare those those lucky times to the poor uh, opportunities we have today, certainly because of uh, uh, the economic crisis and uh, the difficulties of uh, of uh, pursuing experiments at high cost and complicated uh, uh, re- apparatus and so on, uh, we were very lucky in those days. And um, uh, the big problem today is to try to maintain, restore, and improve the opportunities for young people to have the kind of experiences I had uh, in uh, in my graduate school days at Columbia. What else can I tell you? Uh, that's the, uh, uh, the a major thing. I do want to say a few things about uh, opportunities. One of the things that I got interested in and talked a lot about yesterday was science education. And But what I didn't talk about is um, a... Uh, a school uh, that I had the uh, good luck and maybe a little bit of wisdom in starting uh, in Illinois. It's called the Illinois Math and Science Academy. I was, uh, as a director of the uh, 
Fermi Laboratory. I was interested in students and in education, and uh, we had a lot of uh, opportunities to invite students to come into uh, the laboratory and to take courses. There was Saturday morning physics courses, and uh, out of that, a procession of uh, young students that would come into the laboratory, and that kind of inspired me because I realized that uh, the average schools uh, in uh, Chicago area in Illinois were not uh, exceptionally um, good at teaching young people. And so I uh, got involved in this thing and uh, organized uh, something called the Illinois Math and Science Academy, abbreviated IMSA, I-M-S-A. It was a, a special school I uh, had to see the governor of Illinois. This is one of these governors who happens not to be in jail. I mean, it's, un- <laughs> it's unusual for Illinois, but this, this was an okay governor. And he was intrigued by the notion of uh, creating a special school in Illinois. I told him about the... I mean, he had knew about the famous Bronx High School of Science, and I said, we need a Bronx High School of Science out here in the prairie of Illinois. And... Uh, He uh, authorized the existence of a special school uh, for gifted young people uh, in which the school itself uh, would also be a a place where students could live in. It was a residential public school that would uh, carry students through the last three years of high school. And that uh, opened in 1986. And the first graduating class was in 1989, so it's uh, well over 20 years now producing some of the most brilliant and uh, students. Uh, Well, these were all uh, restricted to the state of Illinois by the law, but it was a uh, fantastic experience, uh, especially since uh, within the last uh, month or two, the Intel Foundation, which Intel is a huge uh, electronics company, and they uh, uh, spend a lot of money on on education, on science education, and uh, uh, they had uh, they uh, uh, organized a uh, study of uh, schools, and I was very happy to learn not too long ago that. Um, the Illinois Math Science Academy was given what's called the Intel Star Innovator Award and as, as the best science high school in the nation. Uh, they had tested some 700 schools uh, for us to win this particular award, which was uh, certainly uh, uh, gratifying. Uh, some of our graduates, uh, we, by now, have, uh, have had... Uh, Uh, huge uh, uh, careers uh, in in science, but not only in science, but in all subjects. Uh, But the notion of of, uh, giftedness and taking care of this this, uh, idea that young students who have a gift should be encouraged uh, in in the best possible way was... uh, something that I, was, I believed in and still believe in this. And the Illinois Math Science Academy is a fantastic school. If you're ever discouraged or you know, feel uh, uh, that you need to, to cheer up or so on, I invite you to come and visit the school. It's uh, about 30 miles west of Chicago, very close to the uh, Fermi Lab, where you could also invite it to visit. But the school itself is a, um, has this fantastic group of students uh, that are uh, increasingly making their way in the world. Uh, of course, this is a high school, but the uh, uh, push they get towards uh, higher education is, is enormous and gratifying. Uh, and I, every time I feel a little, I need more encouragement, I go to the school and sit there and chat with the students. We now have 4,000 
uh, graduates. That we graduate uh, something like uh, two or three hundred students a year. Uh, they go to the universities everywhere. I'm sure there are uh, many of our students are here at, uh, at California. Uh, but uh, to take special care of giftedness is, is an important thing. It's not the only thing you want to do in education. But uh, it is an important issue because these are the students who will become the doctors and the, the uh, wise people uh, that will uh, uh, sustain our society in the times to come. Uh, the Illinois Math Science Academy uh, <clears throat> uh, has projects, and one of the projects uh, we had was for each of these students to uh, a famous scientist and write a biography of the scientist. Now, it's interesting that when you challenge them to name a famous scientist, and I say not, not no, nobody present company, you know, just pick a fa- name of a famous scientist, they were silent. They didn't know any names of scientists. So I said, okay, well, you have subjects you like, uh, uh, look up the subject and find the scientist who's active in that subject. And eventually, uh, they did. Uh, that was one of our interesting projects because um, they then, uh, there were 15 students and they picked 15 scientists and I uh, told them that I, they uh, then did research on what the scientist had done And um, at some point, I said, you have to interview the scientists. Well, how do we do that? Uh, So I called up uh, a lady by the name of Claudia Dreyfus, who writes for the New York Times, and she writes an article periodically, uh, a biograph, a biography of some living scientist. And uh, so she came and uh, very kindly gave these kids a lecture on how you interview scientists, what you ask, how do you ask questions, how do you keep the conversation going. And as a net result, each of these students wrote um, an essay. I warned the scientists that they picked, the ones that I could reach on the telephone, you may get a funny telephone call from a high school student. Please be kind, he's going to write a biography. And eventually, (laughs) that's what happened. They uh, wrote biographies, and I put them together and called a publisher I knew, and he said, oh, he'd be delighted. So there's a book called uh, 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 Structure, or I forgot the exact title, but it had to do with famous American scientists. And each of these kids is now an author of a book. The book has these... Uh, delightful stories of the scientists. They, kids emphasized, of course, the uh, high school experience of the famous scientists. I think uh, you must know some of them here. Charlie Towns is in the book. And uh, uh, these uh, students wrote uh, um, a really lively story of, of these scientists. That was one of the projects <laughs> uh, the students had. Uh, so uh, again, uh, I wouldn't mind uh, answering any questions or uh, listening to uh, better stories on uh, experiences of various kinds. Um, Einstein has, has said that uh, David Baum, David Baum is his intellectual successor. Yes. So what do you think about David Baum's quantum theory? <laughs> David Baum, well... Uh, he's a very interesting guy, but I don't. I mean, I think if you want to learn quantum theory, there's there are there are probably uh, better uh, educational books on quantum theory now. That, that he is, I think his book is was is rather old, and I don't remember. I can't really tell you whether it was one of the better books, but by now you can find some really good quantum mechanics books. Uh, available at our more modern, more up-to-date. David Bohm was an interesting guy, uh, but that's a complicated story uh, of of his problems and so on. I think he uh, he was uh, actually when he was in 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 real political troubles, 
many of us were very sympathetic to his point of view. Hi, I'm Sherry Shee from the Exploratorium, a museum in San Francisco that was founded by Frank Oppenheimer back in 1969. Right. And I'm wondering, did you visit museums when you were a kid? And well, did you know the Oppenheimer brothers? And if you can tell some stories about that. <laughs> uh, museums, yes. There was a New York, I was lived in New York City, and we had uh, a plethora of museums, and I loved to go to museums, especially the Museum of Science and Industry in Manhattan. And... Uh, I certainly went to museums. Now you asked about Oppenheimer. I, uh, I knew both Frank Oppenheimer and, uh, and what's the, huh? Robert Oppenheimer there. Uh, that was part of our life. It was a political uh, problem. Uh, the story of Oppenheimer is, uh, is well documented. There are several books on the subject. Uh, he had a, uh, he was of course a, a heroic figure in World War II, uh, having led the research which led to the nuclear bomb. Uh, then he was, um, I think, uh, dumped on by, uh, uh, because he uh, was a, uh, a free thinker and uh, 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 although he he uh, made a huge contribution to the uh, to the war effort in World War II, uh, he was unpopular in the military, and uh, they eventually, uh, uh, for reasons which were very complicated, uh, he um, his um, efforts to. Uh, uh, helped the United States were thwarted by people who thought politically he was not correct enough for them. Uh, and so he um, retired to Princeton where he uh, uh, was director for the, uh, the Institute for Advanced Study. But his scientific career was sort of ended by a traumatic experience he had politically. Leon, I wondered whether you'd uh, talk to us a little bit about your experiences in the end of 1956 when uh, violation of parity was uh, discovered. Ah, 56, parity, parity, yes. Let me try to rem <laughs> remember what happened. Um, uh, there, uh, I'm, I'm really drawing a, a kind of blank as to the sequence of events uh, which, uh, which uh, led to... Uh, let, me ask more, let me ask more specifically. I mean, when, when did you hear about Madame Wu's result and when did you start doing experiments yeah, yourself? And you. what did you know about other people who were racing yeah. to get the result at the same time? Yeah, well, we, we, we had the uh, big benefit at Columbia of having uh, Tsundao Li, who was a professor of physics at Columbia, and he was one of the authors uh, along with Frank Yang of the, uh, of the notion that, um, uh, that uh, one of the uh, basic laws uh, of physics um, which we all believed in which was conservation of parity uh, might not be uh, actually a valid uh, idea and uh, there was, there was uh, evidence, uh, if I remember right, uh, from various uh, experiments to indicate that perhaps one of these basic sacred laws of physics we all thought was certainly valid uh, might, in fact, uh, not be valid. And uh, uh, so, the, and they gave a series, they actually uh, proposed a series of experiments that might uh, test the validity of this notion. One of the uh, dramatic uh, consequences of this has to do with uh, with mirror symmetry. That if you look in a mirror, uh, let's say one wall of this room is a mirror, and all of you guys are doing experiments, and the guys in the mirror are, of course, doing the same experiments. The question is, um, uh, is the is the symmetry such that uh, both uh, the mirror 
experimentalists and the real experimentalists get the same results. And, and 99% or more of physicists would say, of course, you must get the same results because that's just the mirror image of what's going on here. But <clears throat> much to everybody's surprise and to the wisdom of uh, Li and Yang, uh, they uh, decided that perhaps the uh, symmetry was not perfect, that there was, a there was a violation of mirror symmetry and that the mirror world was not precisely the same as our world. And they uh, made that part of their um, uh, paper which gave rise to the notion of, well, can we, do, can we check this experimentally? And of course, the story was that when, when experimenters uh, now full of doubt about the validity of mirror symmetry went at it and made, it, made tests, we found, in fact, that the symmetry between the world and the mirror world was not perfect, but it was imperfect. There was a major discovery because... For, for uh, 50 years or so, people believed that uh, the mirror world and the real world were, were identical. You know, how can, how can it be different? But it turned out that uh, it was known as the, the mirror symmetry was broken. It was not a correct symmetry, and that made a big change in our philosophy of how particles behave. That was, uh, that was very exciting. You know, you, every, every once in a while, you get uh, uh, epochs of great excitement in physics where, where uh, you rush in to do an experiment and you are not sure you know what the results will be. And it's the uh, greatest joy when, in fact, it turns out that the kind of results you uh, expected don't turn out to be the correct results, but something totally different takes place. And that's what happened during the, the parity days. We discovered by careful experiments that the, the mirror world and the real world are actually different. There are differences. And uh, that was uh, a period of great excitement. Now we're used to it. We understand uh, the violation of mirror symmetry. Yeah. Uh, Professor Lenderman, uh, what uh, do you remember? What were you doing? <laughs> make a little what, space between you what, and the microphone. What, what were you doing when the Nobel Prize Committee notified you have won the Nobel Prize? And what's your first? Uh, what's your feeling in the first time? Uh, I think I like. Let me let me say that winning the Nobel Prize is something I recommend very highly. <laughs> it really is a lot of fun. Uh, this uh, uh, probably uh, as usual it happens late at night you get a telephone call I think in this particular case or one very much like it my wife had the phone and we sort of suspected that there would be an award it was rumored and so on and uh, she got the telephone call and she said to me we can't go to Sweden because I have a dinner date that night she handed me the phone and uh, she was kidding of course <laughs> so I recommend winning a prize very highly I think it's a great thing to do um, I was actually a student of yours at Columbia you were? I, yes oh yeah you sat in you the third row you gave me an A row. plus in physics 8 in 19 <laughs> <laughs> but um, and was an undergraduate and graduate student during most of those years, uh, I, I got my PhD with Charlie Towns, and um, it was amazing to me, and people have remarked on that, that almost every professor I had who had you know, won a Nobel Prize, and, and I was wondering if you had, when you were there, had a sense of this being some sort of golden age, or the other people <laughs> being... Uh, well, uh, as a graduate student at Columbia, uh, we had a button made, uh, uh, which we wore for occasionally called Not Yet. <laughs> and that's because the faculty at Columbia were loaded with Nobel Prize winners. There was Robbie, there was Towns, there was Willis Lamb. There were, you know, it was just a star-studded faculty. 
And so the graduate students would, you know, feel a little bit awkward about this, so we got this nice button saying, not yet, which was a sense of uh, wild optimism <laughs> that something good would happen to you. But yeah, I, I, I think of two experiences. First of all, I had a lab on the 10th floor of Pupin also. Oh, yeah. But I remember one, one morning um, doing experiments, staying up at night, and coming down the elevator, and I was in, in the elevator with um, Lee and Cush and Robbie, actually. And Three I, Nobel laureates. Yeah, I couldn't resist. It's the only time I had that much chutzpah. I couldn't resist saying, do you guys realize I'm the only person in this elevator who doesn't have a Nobel Prize? <laughs> it's a gutsy thing for a graduate student to say. Well, it was a great department, and having those people around uh, was uh, uh, a, a fantastic experience. Uh, and even even uh, uh, somewhat lesser uh, creatures like uh, uh, the Bernardini story, who uh, uh, would always say "fantastico," you know, uh, what you learned there was a sense of wonder in physics that you, you learn something and it's just beautiful. That, in fact, was a uh, comment uh, made to me by uh, uh, some time ago by my senator in Illinois who's now the President of the United States. And we had a conversation on, uh, on, on physics. He seemed to know a lot about it. And what he said was amazing to me. He said, the thing about science, and especially physics, he says, is when you guys make a discovery, it turns out to be beautiful. Now, that's, that was a surprise, because to say that something in physics is beautiful is something that physicists say all the time, but not when outsiders are listening. You don't want, you know, you're bragging <laughs> about the fact that the subject is beautiful. But here was a, a lay person, in a sense, who recognized the beauty of science. So I'm very happy about having him in the White House take care, <laughs> care of, uh, hopefully, at some point, uh, supporting uh, the increase is that he really understands we need in research uh, and education, which is what we're all devoted to. I have to say, I remember among all the professors that you really communicated that. I think uh, this was the, I don't know, there was some sort of honors physics for smart freshmen and uh, <laughs> like sophomores. And, I think the, the last semester was optics and atomic physics or something. <laughs> maybe that was the most beautiful of the three subjects. Right. There's a guy behind you who's big, and I would get out of his way. <laughs> uh, Professor, what in current physics research do you find particularly exciting? Now? Yes. Oh, gosh. Well, I think uh, it's very clear to me that what, what uh, there's... We're in an epoch, I think, of uh, incredible discovery. Uh, you can take a deep breath and you sort of can sense discovery in the air. Part of this discovery comes from astrophysics. Uh, you know, there's a, a new subject called particle astrophysics. It's the, the particles are the smallest things we know about in the world. And the astrophysics are the large things that have to do with, with the galaxies and... Uh, stars and so on. These two subjects are sort of joined by phenomenon that bridge both, both subjects. And uh, uh, so this is a, an ex a very exciting time, and what will cap the excitement will be the new machine that's under construction. Hopefully, uh, we'll start working within the next months of, uh, in, in, um, in Switzerland, in Geneva. Uh, the uh, Large Hadron Collider, it's called, that, that's going to uh, be like a new telescope. Remember Galileo, you know, looked with a, made a telescope and looked up and discovered the moons of Jupiter and so many things, in fact, started uh, scientific astronomy. And uh, this new machine that's uh, under construction in Europe, which is now participated, also all of the major nations are participating in this, uh, will uh, certainly uh, give us new phenomenon and uh, will help us understand 
many of the puzzles that are bothering us right now that have to do with astrophysics and you know dark energy and dark matter and phenomenon. We're in an exciting time. I wish that economically uh, uh, we would uh, overcome our present uh, difficulties uh, and uh, begin to really uh, uh, ex accelerate uh, the, the kind of research that uh, will reveal what's going on. Yeah. Leon, when you were a kid, was there some experience or a I'm person? still a kid, huh? Oh, that's right. But, but that started you down the path to become a physicist instead of, say, a Wall Street wizard. So. Uh, I tried Wall Street. <laughs> it didn't work. Uh, why did I get into physics? Uh, actually, in the beginning, I was uh, uh, in high school and early college. I was a chemistry major. Uh, but... Um, Little by little, I turned to physics because chemistry was complicated and physics was simple. At least I so I thought. And uh, the uh, the physicists in the area were more dynamic, if you like. And physics um, had a great attraction because, in some ways, it was very simple. You know, you dealt with a particle or two particles and so on. And chemistry was very complicated with all kinds of molecules sticking out in all directions. So uh, I thought uh, physics was had, had a kind of appeal uh, because of ultimately it looked for the simplicity and tried to make the most of understanding the world that, that we live in. So I think that was, a, for me, a very good choice is to, is to stay with physics or some of my best friends talk to chemists. <laughs> uh, when you think uh, back uh, to the, the history of mankind, uh, can you mention two or three inventions that were most uh, beneficial? Inventions. Well, inventions sort of imply something that's useful, like, you know, I don't know, automobile invention. Uh, that's a good question, if I can think of discoveries, maybe that's a better word than inventions. Uh, and clearly, uh, the fact that we can understand so much of the world in which we live is already a discovery. I think that's important to know that we, we can understand, you know, we can predict uh, Halley's Comet will appear at 2061 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday and pretty much we can get it right. So we know a lot about the world in which we live, but there are a lot of things about the world in which we live that we don't understand. And the challenge of understanding those is very great and important. Uh, we have lots of problems uh, facing us uh, in environmental problems and uh, social problems and economic problems. And, uh, uh, but... Uh, understanding the world, I think, and understanding the world in which we live in a thorough and deep way is one of the major th tasks we have. And uh, this is something that uh, mankind has uh, been concerned with for a long time, and it's still there, that we do, we do have so many things we, we need to understand better than we do now. Okay, with that, I'd like to, uh, to thank uh, Leon for his talk and thank all of you for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.